Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. So like I said, um, this is part of the journey we're on. It's part of this gifts journey. It's part of this serving journey. Uh, it's part of the learning journey. We're on this journey with Jesus in uh, what we've called the way. He called it that first, to be fair. Um, and what we're really learning is what does it mean to kind of live our full lives with him? How, what does it mean to follow Jesus with everything we do, not just the easy stuff, not just the safe stuff, not just the way we were raised to think, but what does it mean to think like him, to be like him, to walk like him, and that's where we are. In the last few weeks, we've been going through a part of the story where Jesus has been addressing Pharisees. Pharisees are these religious people. They're the scholars, and they, they know their scripture inside and out. They're rule followers. They're a lot like us. And, and so in the last couple of weeks, we've told the story of the prodigal son, the wayward son who was welcomed home, and the shrewd manager last week. If you're missing these, you can always go back on the website and check things out. And the shrewd manager was kind of this crooked guy, but Jesus found a way to even see how we could learn from him. Basically, what Jesus has been doing is telling these stories that open us up to the idea that we don't have it all figured out. Stories that challenge the way we see the world and challenge what we value in the world. So this week, we're going to dial in a little closer. So he's continuing on talking to the Pharisees, and we're going to read from Luke chapter 16. We'll put it up so you can read along with me. It says, Jesus went on to make these comments. If you're honest in small things, you'll be honest in big things. If you're a crook in small things, you'll be a crook in big things. If you're not honest in small jobs, who will put you in charge of the store? No worker can serve two bosses. He'll either hate the first and love the second or adore the first and despise the second. Can't serve both God and the bank. Your translation probably says you cannot serve both God and money. When the Pharisees, a money-obsessed bunch, heard him say these things, they rolled their eyes. They dismissed him as hopelessly out of touch. So Jesus spoke to them and said, you are masters at making yourselves look good in front of others, but God knows what's behind the appearance. What society sees and calls monumental, God sees through and calls monstrous. God's law and the prophets climaxed in John, and now it's all kingdom of God, the glad news, the gospel, compelling invitation to every man and woman. The sky will disintegrate and the earth will dissolve before a single letter of God's law wears out. And yet, using the legalities of divorce as a cover for lust is adultery, and using the legalities of marriage as a cover for lust is adultery. And that's where we'll stop for the day. He seems to say a lot, and there's some confusing, like, how did he get from the bank to the law to lust, and like, what's happening? What we need to see first and foremost is Jesus is saying, you cannot have two first priorities, this seems like a pretty obvious thing, but when, when we're even asked, hey, what are your priorities for the week? You only get one, and the other things are like sub-priorities. They're, they're second, third, fourth, but you have one priority. It's like, what's the primary thing in your life? You don't say, what are the 10 primary things in your life? Because primary means there's only one. Jesus is saying, you can't have two first priorities. The way to do this is, is you know, the old thing you would do with your friends, your family. You ever play this game where you go, okay, the house is on fire. You get to save one thing. Everybody's probably walked through this and said, okay, so just go there. Your, your living place is on fire. You get to save one thing. 
What are you saving? Keepsake, that quilt from my great-great-grandmother's, grandmother's, grandmother's, that's like the family heirloom. Is it jewelry? Is it a box of cereal? I don't know. What, whatever you're into at the moment. You, but you know, when I start saying that, you can go through your list pretty quick, and you're at the top three or four, and you're like, I think I know where I'm going with that. What would you save if the house was on fire? But the answer to the question has to be one thing, because that's the way the game is played. What one thing would you save? Not what two things would you save, unless you're smart like me and you don't believe in rules, in which you go, I'd get a bag full of all my favorite things. So then I, I one bag, though. Another way to think of this, classically, uh, married people probably have experienced this. Um, would you rather spend an extra hour shopping to get a really good deal, or pay a little more to save an extra hour of shopping? Now, this obviously can fall on gender lines. We don't want to stereotype here, but my wife would rather, she's not here to defend herself, so I, just, I can make it up right now. My wife would rather spend that extra hour shopping to get the really good deal. And I would rather pay 10 times the amount to just be done. Let's go home. How much does it cost? I don't know. Is it on Amazon? It's twice the price, but they'll bring it to our house? Let's do that. But that, that reveals priorities, doesn't it? What that is is a priority discussion. It's not about whether you want a good deal or not. Is do you value your time or your money more? Jesus is making an accusation here to the Pharisees, and, and we, have to, we have to own that we are most often, in our worst days, we are the modern Pharisees. We're, we're going to rely on rules. We're going to be the religious people. We're going to be those who are not quite seeing the upside-down world that Jesus keeps laying out because we will drift back into our default, which is kind of Pharisee-like. He's accusing them of trying to claim that God is the most important thing in the world while they're really after status and wealth. And they're using God to grow their status and wealth as opposed to using their status and wealth to make more of God. He's telling them, you cannot have two first priorities. And it says they, they roll their eyes at him like he's just out of touch. He just doesn't get it. What a fool. So Jesus says, you claim one thing, but, but God sees behind that. God sees your heart motivation behind the thing you're doing. And then he uses this personal example, which is how he moves into this strange thing about divorce and remarriage. And, and in, in your Bible and in my Bible, we usually have seen that, and we, it, it, it kind of sits in a weird spot in the text, and we go, why is this, this rule Jesus is going to throw out about whether it's okay to remarry and how that works? And so for, for all of Christianity, we've been trying to force that into a rule, and it, it, it is a principle of sorts. And yet we've always gone, so it is okay to remarry, but only if, and then there's all these rules behind that. And Eugene Peterson in his message translation kind of just undoes, he pulls a string on that, and the rule-based idea goes away because in line of it, Jesus is not giving rules. Jesus is undoing rules to set up a principle. And that's where he says, using the legalities of marriage for lust is still adultery, it's still lust. And using the legalities for divorce, in order to obtain and gratify your lust, is still lust. But what he's saying is it doesn't matter if you want to use the law this way or that way. It doesn't matter if the rule says this or that. If your heart is after this wrong thing, it's the wrong thing no matter how you get there. And you could use all the legalese, you can use all the hoops, and it, that's not the point. So he's saying in some sense you can't serve God in your lust. He, he continues to make this point. I think this is actually a really good spot for us because Anytime you talk about money, and Jesus is primarily talking about money for the Pharisees here, people kind of shut down. And so what people would rather talk about instead of money is uh, sexuality. So let's talk more about that. 
the really common question I get when we do premarital counseling, you know, a couple come sit on my couch in my office and they, we want to walk through, what do we need to know to be ready to get married? And, and yet before we even get to like, what do I need to know? One of the most common questions is, um, can you tell me where to draw the lines? Can you tell us where to draw the lines? You guys, you know what I'm talking about. Where, where do we draw the lines? How much is too much? How far is too far? And the questions start coming out. And the question for me is always, where, where do we draw the line? They wish they wouldn't ask that. There's a lot of young adults in this room. You can look around, see each other. A lot of good-looking ones. Congratulations. If you're single and you don't want to be after this, you can just hold a finger up. I don't know. <laughs> no, okay. Um, this is a difficult thing. I, I would acknowledge this is not an easy thing for people to go through and deal with it. Where do, I, where do we draw the lines? What's okay? How does this work? Sexually charged culture. We're in a college town. I don't know if you notice in spring... Um, clothes just disappear. Everybody's clothes are just gone. Men are walking around with no shirts. Women have shorts that the waist is somehow like up here. And the, I don't, I don't know. I'm a little uncomfortable. Let's just keep going. All of this is happening. These people are sitting on my couch. Remember, that's where we are. They're sitting on my couch. They're living in this sexually charged culture. Not to mention the internet. People are swiping all kinds of different directions. Um, all of this is built on God's beautifully designed architecture of humanity, which is that men and women are designed to fit together, to be drawn together. Like, that's good. God did that and called it good. And so every young couple struggles with what amount of intimacy is okay and acceptable. And there's always two ways. Let me get to the point. There's two ways this question gets asked. The first way is they will say, like, um, how far is too far? Like, um, where should we draw the line because we're basically magnets and these clothes are itchy, so can you help us out? And then I go, yeah, we can do that. We can talk about that. The other style of question is a little different. So that first answer, the first question you're asking is like, just tell me what, which is a rule. Give me a rule. Give me a, a guideline. Give me a structure. Tell me what, and we'll just do that. The second type is a pretty rare question, but I get it on occasion. People say, what honors God in the way we handle the fact that we are magnets and these clothes are itchy? Like, what, how do we honor God in that? Can you show me where my design stops and my danger begins? Can you show me that line? Is there, is that, is there a line in which I'll go, no, good luck? Um, but that's a whole different question, right? That's asking for a principle. That's asking for the why. Why? And where's God's heart? And how do I find that? And how do we honor him? And those are two different questions to get at the same goal, but either reveals a heart motive that's different. Jesus is saying to us then in that moment, you can be about God or your gratification. Because each question has a subject, doesn't it? In one, the subject is, what do I need to do to honor God in my desire? And the other says, what do I need to honor God considering these desires I have? And so the subject of the question is very different. And if we acknowledge that that's how it is for so many parts of our lives, then we begin to realize you can't serve God and lust. The question is either one or the other. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and fame. You can't serve God and status. You can't serve God and approval. You cannot serve God in any lesser thing. You have to choose. And there's the old line about a house divided cannot stand. You can't split the thing in two and expect it to be 
integrated. It's, it's now disintegrated. This is what happens. Sin disintegrates us. It takes what was one whole thing and it breaks it in two and it splits our loyalties and we disintegrate, meaning we become less one what we're aimed and designed to be and we become more and more fractured and we find ourselves broken and we go, how did I get so broken? And you go, there was a disintegration somewhere in there. You cannot manage sin. That's the pharisaical way to approach it. If you create enough rules, you can manage your way through life and sin and heart motives and all that. You just, you just create rules and then sit within the rules. And the, the Pharisees were great at this. They would create rules that they could then sort of keep the guideline and keep themselves on the road, all the while their hearts are way over the line. And Jesus is saying, that's just not how it works anymore. Hey, it's never been about how it works, but you guys created this whole system and it's, it's done. Jesus says the whole thing about let's like create some rules to keep our hearts right, he's like, it's only about the heart. The rules serve the heart, not the other way around. And so it's always been about the heart. Tim Keller has this idea when he was preaching a sermon about this passage. And I'm going to paraphrase it and just lay it out. We'll put it on the screen. It basically says this. There's a war happening between two worldviews. That's what's happening here. One is a material and a temporary worldview. This is all we are. This is all we got. The other is an immaterial and an eternal worldview. There is more than what I can see, touch, feel, and experience, and there is more time than the time I think I have on this earth. Those are two worldviews, the temporary, the material, and the eternal and immaterial. Why does that matter? Where we land on that will show us where we find our security and where our hearts are rooted. And I will say it this way. Here's the diagnostic I would give you. What we struggle to give away reveals what is sacred in our lives. You go, well, I don't know. How do you know where that is? And I would say, what we struggle to give away will reveal what is sacred in our lives. It will tell you how you see the world. When you look at your life and you go, what is it that I struggle to give away? It will tell you whether you are after material or immaterial, temporary or eternal. So if you hoard money, if generosity is just difficult for you, when Nick comes up here and he's like, hey, if you want to be a part of the mission of the church, you want to write a check and throw it in the box or give online or whatever, if you're like, oh, I can't even imagine... And like your hand just reflexively reaches into your pocket and you're holding on to like two quarters and rubbing them together and you're like this, these people, that's what they're after. Maybe, maybe, I don't think so. But if that's your first reaction, if greed is your first reaction, that tells you where your security is. I'm not giving anyone a dollar. Salvation Army, you know, whatever. I'm not giving a dollar away because that dollar is my security. If your time is precious, if someone asks you for 15 minutes and you know it's going to be 20, if someone asks you for an afternoon, if someone says, hey, can you watch our kids? If someone says, hey, can you help me move? And you go, oh, that's my Saturday. What does that say about what you hold as precious and secure? That your time is somehow limited and temporary and you only get so much and so you better hoard what you get. If you get stressed thinking about having a house guest sharing your space, if the idea of sharing uh, your life in a community group, of like having people actually know you, if that actually scares you, what are you holding on to? If someone asks you to borrow your car or your house or your stuff, your favorite tools, your time, whatever, look at what you hold most closely and struggle to give away, and it will lead you to what you hold as most sacred in your life. And this is what Jesus is addressing. There's two worldviews that are colliding in this passage. And there's one that says, build some rules because this is temporary and it's a material thing. And if you can just get that right, check enough boxes, you're good. And the other says, guys, there's so much more than you could see. 
This goes so much further than you know. Interesting is, is once you get this idea that there's two worldviews in Scripture and that Jesus is always attacking and undermining and subverting the worldview that's, that's dominant, it was dominant then and it's still dominant now. Once you get that idea, you can't unsee it that every time you see something in Scripture that Jesus is going after, you see that he's pulling the rug out from a different worldview. There's a part of Scripture where the world says, store up your wealth. And Jesus says, empty your barns. What? The guy says, yeah, I need to build more barns. I, we need more. So I, can I hold on to my stuff, Jesus? Do I have to give everything away, Jesus? And Jesus continually says, give away, give away, give away, give away. Empty your barns. That's a worldview thing that he's doing. Because what they're saying is my security is in having enough so that if we go through drought, I have more food. Jesus is saying your security is in the God of heaven. And if there's a drought, he's got you. And so give away, give away, give away. Your time, your money, your life, your gifts. But we have greed, and we define greed in October in the same series. I'll put it back up on the screen for you. Greed is a desire to control something or someone as a means of, pro of protection from unknown or unexpected threats. That's all greed is. That could be with your money. It could be with your time. It could be our, when we are greedy with things, when we hold things tightly, it is our desire to control so as to get rid of threats in our life. So when you control your time, when you're greedy with your time, the threat is that someone's going to take more of it than you're willing to give. And so by saying no and being greedy with your time, you control your time. The same is true with your money or your body or whatever. So the greed of the Pharisee in this is there is a greed with their finances. Their security is in their finances. They refuse to see that. And so Jesus is pointing out that their security is in finances and not in faith. It's like trying to win life with two different strategies. There's God's way and the world's way. If there's any gamblers in the room, church, this is a good place to be a gambler. If you're in church, it's good. We're good with it. Not really. Don't gamble. Um, it's a different sermon. In gambling, stock market's kind of gambling too. Um, in gambling... There's this uh, concept of hedging your bets. We'll use the stock market. That's an easy one because that's like legalized gambling. Um, if you have all, a bunch of tech stocks, you're all tech stock. That's all you do. Oh, Apple and Facebook and Netflix. That's, that's my thing. I'm tech stocks only. Well, tech stocks, if they drop off the cliff, if, if the internet dies, whatever, and that's all you have, you lose. Your money's gone. And so what a, a smart investor does is hedge their bets. You hedge your bets. You ever heard that term, hedging your bets? Hedging your bets. So now you have some other uh, more commodities-based things. You have some more stable things. You have some bonds. You have some things that aren't really going to get affected. So if Apple dies and all your stock was an Apple, you're good. And so you lose some, but you don't lose entirely. And that's hedging your bets. If the Browns are 100 to 1 to win the Super Bowl and you put your $100 on the Browns to win the Super Bowl and they make the Super Bowl, right before the Super Bowl, you can hedge your bets by betting enough on the other team to cover. So even if the Browns don't win, you still win. That's, that's hedging your bets. You can make a bet so that you can't lose. And this is what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're hedging their bets with faith. Yeah, that Jesus thing, I don't know about him, but this God thing, that seems pretty good. But what if we also made sure we won in life? And that way, even if this God thing doesn't work out for us, we win either way. And Jesus is just saying, you cannot do that. When we hedge our bets against Jesus's way, we're essentially saying that we're not fully sure that his victory is final. This is important, because I kind of make a joke about gambling and hedging your bets in these things. It, 
When your life reveals that you're uncomfortable betting your life on Jesus, it reveals that we lack confidence in his victory. And that's a serious thing. Because you don't hedge your bets when the game is over. Like when the Browns win the Super Bowl, you don't then go, yeah, but can I get 50 bucks on the team they were playing? You wouldn't do that. You already won the bet. You don't hedge your bets after the game. And so if Jesus' victory is final, if Jesus' victory is true, if we own that and we believe that, then you don't have to hedge your bets into anything else. You can be an undiversified investor in the kingdom of God and feel really good about it. So when people are trying to worship both sides, God and money, God and anything else, it's an admission we're not confident in the victory of Jesus. Now, this is not an admonition to you. This is not some scolding. Look, we're, we're not after perfection here. I don't know if you see this as you read the words of Jesus. He's not after your perfection. And as a church, as a people, as a family, as we go through this together, we're after progress, not perfection. So if you're in here going, oh, man, I got, I got a list of things that I hold, you know, I'm hedging my bets with. Good. The awareness is the first start. You know, that's how you get there. And then we start slowly dealing with those. So we're after progress, not perfection. We would say it's okay not to be okay. Just don't stay there. Like, let's just start moving together. How do you get a new worldview, though? So if you're stuck in this temporary thing where you're always hedging your bets, where you're always trying to hold on to God and something else, how do you change your worldview? It's Jesus. I mean, this is, I wish I had a really flowery way to say it. It's just Jesus. It's more of Jesus in your life. It's more of Jesus in your day. It's more of Jesus in your thought process. It's more of Jesus. You have to ask yourself, where is their life beyond this body and beyond this temporary meaning? Where is their life beyond what I can feel and consume? And the only place we find that is in Jesus. So only then, when we focus on Christ and we say, we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, did what he said he did, and we are who he calls us, his children, saved and secured, only when we believe that does his bizarre wealth management strategy start to make sense. Only then can you empty your barns and still feel secure. So in the life of Jesus, we become new creations. And we begin to see the world anew as a result. We begin to see like him. And so the, the whole process, the reason we come in here this one hour a week to learn and grow and, and be challenged to think differently is so that when we go back out there in the other 167 hours, we begin to practice the way of Jesus more clearly and more confidently. So when we begin to see like Jesus, then we can practice the way of Jesus a little bit better. And then we, we live out the way that he's created for us, which then admittedly makes no sense to people who aren't in Jesus. And we start to find that the things he said are true. The things that he's said, that the, the ideas he's laid out, the principles he keeps offering, as opposed to the rules of the Pharisees, these things are true. And they are life-giving, and they are beautiful, and they are eternal. And we start to find that they're real. And so when we hear Jesus throughout the scriptures say the things he says, and, and put up a worldview that he puts up that we go, gosh, I just don't know if that's true. The more you practice the way of Jesus, the more you go, yeah, yeah, no, that's real. And your first day as a believer and your 5,000th day as a believer are very different days as a result. And people say, well, you're just, you're growing in faith, you're maturing. Exactly. You're understanding things that you couldn't have understood then. And so the newlywed couple and the 50-year anniversary, they know very different things about marriage, don't they? We wouldn't say the newly married couple's not married, they're married. But it takes time walking out marriage 
to understand the deep wisdom that can be found there. And so when we watch Jesus and we're, we're struggling with these ideas he lays out, and I don't know if that really fits in our world, Jesus goes, it doesn't, that's the point. In Jesus, there is real honor in humility. We live in a world of arrogance. Jesus' says, honor is in humility. Serve the least of these, even better if nobody sees you do it. There's real joy in repentance, in admitting where we're not fully right yet. There's joy in that. Whereas the world says, hide that stuff, just post your best moments, post your highlight reel, and let all the other stuff, you know, push that down in a ball deep in your stomach. See how that goes. Jesus says there's real riches in generosity, that the real riches of life is giving life away. The world says, don't do that. The real power that we find in life is in serving other people and giving our power away. And we nod in church. We go, oh, okay, I, I, I guess, yeah, okay. And then we get two steps out of the building and we re-enter a culture and a world that thinks all of these ideas are insane. Like, don't be fooled in thinking that the culture kind of thinks Christianity is a pretty good idea. The culture thinks Jesus is probably a pretty decent teacher and sort of admirable. But you dig one inch deep into Christianity and the culture goes, this is insanity. And you only have to look at what the culture behaves like to know that. We're not anti-culture. We love the people outside of these walls. But we have to understand that we are not like them. We've been called to be something different. We've been called to have a different worldview. We've been called to live in a different reality. Yet in the eyes of a broken world, the life of sacrifice and generosity you have been called to is foolishness. The Apostle Paul says it this way to the people in Corinth. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. What's he saying? He's saying for the, th- the very thing that gives us life, the rest of the world will see as foolishness. And so if you are getting a standing ovation from the world at large, you may have to do a double take and wonder what you're practicing. Jesus climbed on the cross. He won through losing. Jesus filled us up by emptying himself. He emptied himself of glory and then upon his resurrection was filled with it. This is not the recipe that the world has given us. How to win friends and influence people. It's different. And we have to really be able to look at our lives and go, am I living the life I was called to or am I hedging my bets against God just in case? Jesus is a man that was born in an animal stall, walked around poor in sandals, had no home, no money, no organization, no publicity, had 12 faithful followers, who at his time of greatest need fell asleep, then betrayed him, then abandoned him, then denied him. And as a result of that, Jesus is the most influential human that ever lived. That's not in the book of how to do it. That's not how you gain influence. That's not how you grow power. And yet that's our Savior. That's the one we follow. That's why we are Christians. Jesus Christ, we are of him. We are with him. We follow him. And so does your life reflect his? Now, I'm not saying everybody shows up next week in sandals and robes and, you know, it's not that. Apply it to the modern world and go, am I looking at the world the way that Jesus would look at my world? Or am I hedging my bets against him? 
He flipped the world by giving everything away. So when he challenges the Pharisees in their greed, yes, it's about their money, but it's not about their money. It's about their hearts. He gives Jesus as the ultimate example. The Apostle Paul again in 2 Corinthians says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, unimaginably, immeasurably rich, for your sake became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave all of himself so that you could know the richness of true life and true flourishing. So when we say, Jesus, put your money where your mouth is, he did. He said, I'm giving everything away so that you might know life. And he goes, now, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to give everything away so that others might know life. So is that your coat? Is that a dollar? Is that your time? Is that your space? Is that a relationship? Is that a worldview? Is that a habit? Is that, what is it that you are holding on to that you don't want to let go because it provides you with some level of control or security in the world that Jesus says, I am the only security you have. And until you recognize it, you're not fully here yet. And I said, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to fall short in this. It's progress, not perfection. And yet the call is really clear. You have to choose. You cannot hedge and have both. You cannot have two first priorities. Do you have a first priority in life and then you fit it into God's way? Or is God's way your first priority and then everything else falls in line? You cannot keep your old life and have new life in him. And new life is not built on rules or our culture's ever-changing metrics of applause. Did I do it right this time? Is the culture going to think I'm great? Your new life is built on his truth and his resurrection and nothing more. Nothing less, but nothing more. And if that's true, it's unchanging and it frees you up to live in the way he's called you to live without fear of what you might lose. In a throwaway world, you are offered riches of unconditional love and mercy. In a sea of insecurity, you are offered safe harbor in his grace and his goodness. And the reason I mentioned those two things a throwaway world and a sea of insecurity is because that is where we start reaching for control. When we feel like we may be passed over and the next thing's coming, when we feel like our greatest vulnerabilities are on display and we're insecure, that's when we start reaching for other idols of control. And Jesus says, you don't need them, I'm here. A culture that never stops trying to convince you that you do not have enough or that you are not enough. And that's the lie of our culture that you're not enough. That God wouldn't want you like you are. That he sees you come back when you're ready. In a world that is trying to convince you that you don't have enough or that you are not enough, Jesus wants you to see that he is your enough. That in him, enough is taken care of and that question is put behind you. He wants you exactly like you are now. You are enough for him today. He doesn't want the perfected version of you because that version of you only exists when you're in him. He wants the version of you as you are right now, broken in pieces, flawed and failing. He wants that version because that's the version that he breathes new life into and then watches as you spend the rest of your life on this earth and the rest of your eternity inching towards Christ's likeness. Like that 50-year marriage, you just start to figure things out down the road. And when you walk with Jesus, when you find yourself with Jesus, it just starts to make sense. 
but you don't have to wait until you're enough. Because Jesus going on to the cross was his signal to you that he's ready for you right now. So the question you have to answer today is, what is most sacred in your life? What do you struggle to let go of? When the world is on fire, where do you run? Play the house on fire game in your life. When your life is on fire, when your world is on fire, where do you run? Some of us hit our knees, and some hit out at any number of other things. Where do you run? Today is your day to let go of anything less than him. To let go of the attempt for control, to grab hold of the only treasure that never fades. Jesus is inviting you into the way, onto the journey, into his traveling party. It's the way of grace and mercy. It is the way of forgiveness and restoration. It is the way of eternity and security. It's the way where you will find true life. And all he asks is that you let go of the life you currently live and take him by the hand and see where he wants to take you because flourishing is out there, because your best is out there, because the optimal version of you exists, but it exists when you are in him. So what are you holding on to? What do you need to let go of? And are you willing to grab hold of him as the replacement? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, uh, your challenge in the text is heavy. It's heavy for me. It's heavy even uh, day to day to look and do a, an audit of life and in this moment or that moment, in this day or that week, to, to really ask the question of what is it that I hold on to for security? Father, you know uh, my heart and you know that as often as I turn to you, I turn to something lesser. God, that each and every one of us, we all have room to grow and yet uh, it is the progress you seek. It's relationship with you that you desire, not that we would get the rules just right. So, Father, on, on one level, we pray that you would give us the courage uh, to let go of the, the lesser things we hold on to, that you would give us the courage to trust that you can be our security, that in a world that has taught us that we have to build our own security, our own significance and control, Father, I pray that today you would give us the courage to let go of those things and grab hold of you. And then, Father, I ask that as we are on the journey with you, for those of us who would call ourselves your followers, those of us who are walking with you, God, you give us the courage to stay the course in a loud world with a thousand different temptations as things to fill us. Father, remind us in our moments of silence, remind us when the world is on fire that you are the only source of eternal hope. God, thank you for your truth, as difficult as it is to hear. Thank you for Jesus and his example of what life looks like, of what losing to find really means. Father, we lift up our prayers in the name, the saving name, the beautiful name, the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.